Hello and welcome to Design Emergency. I'm Alice Rawsthorne, co-founder of Design Emergency with Paolo Antonelli, and our mission is to explore how design is helping us to build a better future by ensuring that all aspects of our life and our ecology can thrive. In this episode, author and activist Claudia Schwellis will describe why and how she's leading a global campaign to tackle a major obstacle to that process by redesigning democracy. Claudia, welcome to Design Emergency. Thank you, Alice. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Oh, well, lovely to have you with us. Um, Claudia was born in Canada to a Polish family. She's devoted the last 10 years to reimagining democracy, first through her work at the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, in Paris, and for the past year as founder and CEO of the Research and Action Institute, Democracy Next. At this extraordinary turbulent, often ominous time, when democracy is under threat in many parts of our planet, Claudia will discuss why this has happened, why we have to stop it, what changes must be made for democracy to thrive, and what's design's role in that process now and in the future. So Claudia, we've got a lot to talk about. And first and foremost, why did you decide to devote your work to revitalising democracy? Was it a specific development that prompted you to do so? Mm, yeah, I think that's a good starting point. Well, it, you know, it's interesting because I didn't actually grow up in a particularly political family or anything, um, but I've always been someone who's been quite curious and interested in everything. So when I went off to university, I didn't know what I was going to focus on and it wasn't necessarily going to be about politics or, or democracy. I was taking courses on history and art history and psychology and all of these things. But um, I think if I really think back, though, that first day that I was at university, I was in London and it was the day that Lehman Brothers crashed. Uh, and my politics professor really made our studies relevant to what was happening in the world um, and that was when I decided to, to focus and major in politics. Uh, a few years later was the European sovereign debt crisis uh, and when I started my first job at a, at a think tank in London I was doing research on populism uh, and this was back in 2012-2013 so it was before populism became a word or a concept that many people were, were really familiar with and I was focused on trying to understand the extent to which people's disillusionment with politics, with the system, uh, the feeling of not having a voice and agency in shaping decisions that were affecting their lives, their families, their communities, were driving people towards populist parties and actors. And it was that work that led me to be convinced that uh, these are part of the deep roots of this problem with democracy. It's it's not the only thing, it's a complex phenomenon, but it is a big part of the, the issue. So this was my initial entry point into then shifting focus, which has been the focus of, of my work for the past 10 years or so, on that more solutions-oriented space about, well, what can we do to revitalize our democratic systems and really shift meaningful public decision-making power to people. And why did you decide to form Democracy Next? Why were you convinced that a new organisation was needed to protect democracy and make it fit for purpose? Well, I founded Democracy Next, uh, which is an international research and action institute which is championing citizens' assemblies uh, as a new systemic form of democratic decision-making. So just to kind of give a bit of context of what, what is Democracy Next. Um, so I founded this just over a year ago, uh, but it's actually been the culmination of work that I've been doing for over a decade now. Um, so I had done research and wrote books on democratic innovation and citizens' assemblies. Um, I also did work at a political consultancy 
for a number of years where I, I had kind of some insights gained from the, the insides of that campaign machine as well. Uh, and then I worked at the OECD, as you mentioned, where I set up and I was leading an area of work on the future of democracy, um, where my colleague, Yeva Chesnatite, who was in my team there and is working with Democracy Next, the, it was really the two of us that did this work on analyzing around 600 examples of citizens' assemblies internationally. Um, and as you know, because you were part of this, we also worked with an international network of, of 75 or so democracy practitioners, innovators, researchers, designers, curators, scientists. It was really quite an interdisciplinary group of people who, who shaped and contributed to that work. And I think we were able to do a lot at the OECD to develop this new comparative evidence base um, to, to use that to develop international standards of good practice, evaluation guidelines. Um, we were starting to examine these trends of new institutions being established, not just one-off processes. But to answer the question, I think that there were really some limits to what could be done at an institution like the OECD. And I founded Democracy Next because I wanted to be able to play a more proactive role in advocating for the ideas that I fundamentally believe in to renew democracy. Uh, and I also wanted to be able to do this in in a bit of a more fun and creative way as well um, to engage more people than just those who are in government um, because at the OECD the work that we did was really targeted at policymakers, at, at decision makers, ministers, people in government which is of course an important group of actors if we want this change to happen but I think if we really want the true transformational change uh, to take place that, that really needs everybody. Um, so I would say that at Democracy Next we're not or engaging kind of with that much wider group of, 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 of people, like really trying to engage everybody even as, as citizens. So let's look at the sort of crux of the, the problems you're addressing. So, of course, democracy is an ancient, exceptionally complex phenomenon. It's been interpreted very differently at different times and in different contexts. What do you identify as the key challenges that we need to address now in order to strengthen our democratic systems? Hmm. Yeah, I I think it's really interesting, um, like having done also some of that historical research and dipping into theoretical texts from different centuries. So if you allow me before directly answering that question, I really think it, it helps us to think about the challenges today. Um, if we're able to take a, a look kind of taking a step back in that historical way because today when we say democracy most people think of elections but I think few people realize just how recent that is the association between those words and concepts of democracy as elections like if we go back to Aristotle he considered elections as a form of oligarchy meaning quite simply rule by the few. And it was this conception of elections that carried on for centuries afterwards. Of course, we've had elections for a long time, but they were never considered democratic until really recently. And it was only at the turn of the, the French and the American revolutions and the establishment of the institutions that we're familiar with today, which have then been modeled and replicated in many ways internationally too, that there was a turning point. And it didn't happen right away. Like if you look at those early constitutions though, the word democracy, doesn't appear anywhere. You do control F of the American constitution, democracy is not to be found. Um, and that's because the intention of those institutions was oligarchic. It was actually to constrain the power of the many. And it was only much, much later with the suffragette movements that the word democratic representation started to appear in calls for more people to have the right to vote. Um, and without going into the entire long history of it, um, but it was really, 
I guess with suffrage being expanded, that the term representative democracy started to become more commonly used. And today we're often just saying democracy tout court to describe the system. But that doesn't actually necessarily make it democratic. Um, if we go back to what is a, a theoretical or philosophical understanding of democracy being ruled by the many. So going back again to Aristotle, uh, for him, democracy was embodied through two main principles. One being mass participation, where everybody can participate directly. And the second being sortition, so meaning random selection of decision makers who rotate in that position of, of privilege and responsibility in power over time. Um, and, you know, of course, in Aristotle's time, both of those things were limited to a very narrow portion of, of the population. So men who are not slaves, essentially. So, but anyways, there's been debates about who could be considered part of our civic and political class um, and who has democratic rights for centuries. Um, and I'd argue that continues today. And that really needs to be part of the reflections about what is a democratic future as well. Because I think today it's become more obvious that women have political rights. But we still have fierce debates about the rights of migrants. We have debates around well, actually, we're not having as many debates about this, but there should be about the rights of children. But I think it, this, so this is not just like a dilemma that has somehow been solved, but I think continues to actually be part of a wider, wider deliberation about, about democracy. Um, but the final sort of historical thing I'll, I'll add before kind of going into some of the, the real problems that all of that has for, for democracy today is that in many non-Western cultures as well, the idea of democracy as deliberation is also old and, and quite widely spread. So the idea of like meeting to talk about an issue together, trying to work our way to some form of consensus and what do we do about it has been and continues to be a very common form of, of democracy which in some ways has been kind of well you know squashed by the imposition of elections um, and so I'm not sure how much we need to go into the depth of the problems with a system defined by elections which I think many people have come to understand a bit intuitively but just to name a few of them I think it's one that by design has emphasized winning over finding common ground. Um, elections are also concentrating powers in the hands of a few. Um, elected officials are, are being incentivized to act in ways that keep them re-elected, even if that may be sometimes at odds with either their personal convictions or the public good more widely. Um, the institutions of political parties also only entrench and enhance those problems of oligarchy. Um, it was, well, there's many people, but I, I find Hannah Arendt's work on, on writing about political parties as oligarchic institutions, uh, as the gatekeepers of a very tiny group of people who decide who can even run for office in the first place with their own logic of internal politics as well. Um, I... You know, another issue I mentioned I mentioned earlier that I spent a few years working at a political strategy consultancy. So I worked with political parties doing things like micro targeting and running focus groups. And I think this in some ways cemented my understandings of some of the other problems of, of democracy as elections from the inside. Um, that you know, it's actually all the parties today that are driven by this logic of adapting their programs, their platforms, the, the language that they're using to what the, they think the people want to hear. Um, so this true battle of ideas and a commitment to values and ideology, I would argue it doesn't even really exist anymore. Um, and maybe as a final thing, I think in, well, in some countries, maybe more than others, but I think it's a problem everywhere to some extent. The problem of money in politics, distorting who can even run 
for office, what issues get on the table, who has an influ influence on shaping the solutions to those issues. Um, these are also really big problems, which again, all of this I think goes to the question of the design of a system of democracy as elections. So. Sorry, I think it's a bit of a, a long intro to, to your question about the problems of the democratic system, what needs to be done. But, but I think that having a bit of this wider historical perspectives enables us to be able to have the self-reflection and question our own assumptions about what do we even mean by democracy. Um, and it opens up that possibility of imagining a democracy that's not necessarily just narrowly defined by elections, but we could have another genuinely democratic future with institutions that are defined by participation, by sortition, by deliberation. Um, so, so yeah. <laughs> So in practical terms, what would that future look like? What would constitute a flourishing democracy in the mid-2020s and beyond? Yeah, well, mid-2020s, I think uh, I, I would love to see that happen, but I do think this is a long-term game and, and uh, we, have to, we have to start somewhere because I, I do think actually the need to change things is, is pretty urgent. But, but I am hopeful, um, and I think the thing that gives me some sense of hope and, and um, uh, an imagination of what could be different is all this work that I have been doing around citizens' assemblies around the world. Um, so perhaps just to define briefly what are citizens' assemblies as not all of the the listeners might be familiar with, with this idea. Um, so citizens' assemblies are assemblies where people are selected by sortition, so that means by random selection, uh, to be part of a group of people who comes together over many months to grapple with a, a specific issue, um, which could relate to a specific policy or piece of legislation or a constitutional issue. Um, and they examine a lot of evidence, meaning you know research, um, but also lived experience of an issue. And they deliberate, they listen to one another, and they work to find consensus, usually 70 or 80% consensus, around a shared set of propositions towards, um, towards a government or other public authority about what do we do about this. Um, so to make that less abstract, for example, where I live here in France, there was recently a citizens' assembly on end of life where the French government convened a group of 185 people selected by lottery um, who worked together over the course of four months, deliberating over the course of 27 days about whether France should change its existing legislation around euthanasia, assisted dying, related issues. Um, and they'd heard from over 60 experts, including researchers, but also faith group leaders, um, medical professionals, philosophers, uh, and they they drafted 67 recommendations for the French government, finding 92% consensus on them that they delivered to President Macron in April. So anyways, th th that's kind of what I mean by citizens' assemblies. I think quite different to a lot of the kind of uh, other participatory or, or, or processes that people might be familiar with, with today. So taking a moment to define that. So you know, my work has now looked into around 600 of these assemblies, like the one I just described, around the world. Um, and what I would love to see for a future democracy, starting from now in the mid-2020s, but also beyond, um, is that, you know, I want these citizens' assemblies, first of all, to be more of them, but for them to actually have real decision-making power. Uh, because today the problem is that these assemblies have been happening, but in a very ad hoc, one-off way that depends on political will um, and there's nothing that binds governments to have to accept all of the recommendations that come out of it. So we've seen to some extent, well varying extents more or less, of cherry picking of the recommendations um, and the recommendations that don't get accepted 
It's not for evidence-based or scientific reasons, but for all those problems to do with politics that I was describing earlier, um, to do with like the electoral incentives and the you know influence of who's contributing to campaigns, coming to speak to the minister responsible for that issue, and so on. And so, I think. You know, that to me is the, the main motivation for the work we're doing is how do we actually shift that power? And I think in many places that the reality is that that will require some form of constitutional change, uh, which is why I see this as a, as a long term game. Um, but I think we need to start somewhere and just having more assemblies happening and, and then becoming anchored um, as institutions, meaning with a legal basis connected in to other existing institutions like parliaments and so on, um, is a starting point. Um, so I'm not saying we need to get rid of elections necessarily, because that would be very simplistic, and I'm not sure that's actually what we need. But I do think the whole democratic system needs to evolve, and we need to have assemblies that, that have real power as defining institutions of, of democracy as well. So obviously you're looking at a huge scale and a very complex picture in that up until now, most citizens' assemblies have tended to focus on contentious and polarising issues, as you say, to find common ground and consensus. And they've been very effective in doing so. But it is going to take many other changes if the entire political system or democratic system is going to be fit for purpose. So could you give us other practical examples of projects that aim to achieve that, that, that are working, and then perhaps illustrate how you think the bigger picture could evolve? Yeah, indeed. And I mean, I'm definitely convinced that, you know, citizens assemblies are not the only thing that we need. So I don't want that to come across in some sort of simplistic way either. I think we need all sorts of other democratic changes as well. But I'm also not convinced, like, I think there's a limit to, to focusing on things like, you know, electoral reform, changing the way in which elections work or things like that, because I think we actually have these same deep problems <laughs> across different countries and places that have slightly different systems for all those things. But there's a much deeper root to this problem that has to do with, um, you know, well, with the things that I was talking about earlier, but that are related to issues around people's sense of agency and being able to really have an influence on, on decision making around how do we actually overcome polarization and create the deliberative space is that people can truly listen to one another and be heard. And I don't think there's a shortcut to solving those kinds of problems. So I think, like, to me, the, the most inspiring examples um, of this kind of more systemic change that are happening are the ones where we've seen actually the establishment of new institutions in a way where they're being connected in to this wider system. And that in itself is actually changing the relationship that people have with um, with government and with democracy. So, for example, um, the, the world's first place to establish uh, a first permanent citizens assembly is in Ostbelgian, which is the German-speaking region of Belgium. Um, and so it's a it's a region with about 80,000 people, but it's also Belgium, so they have their own parliament that has quite a lot of power, uh, about the equivalent of, of the Scottish government, uh, to give people some sense of context. Um, so an interesting place, I think, for, for, for this kind of first experiment to have been taking place. And back in 2019, um, the parliament there, which has 25 people, voted to establish 
establish a permanent citizens assembly that now sits alongside that parliament, um, kind of almost as a second chamber. Um, but in terms of the role that it plays is that that citizens assembly has an agenda setting role. Um, so, you know, the other issue that I think we have with democracy today is that what issue even comes to be on the table is determined really top down um, and is often related back to those other political incentives. Um, so here in the Ausbelgian system, it's now citizens that are deciding what's the issue that should go to a one-off citizens assembly every single year. Um, and there's now a legal basis which requires that that assembly's recommendations must go through a parliamentary committee and the parliament has to have at least two debates and a vote on it. Um, and so this creates a whole new set of relationships and accountability that comes into the system in terms of people actually having more of a role to play in what are the, the important issues facing our community. Um, and all of that work that goes into developing propositions for legislation, policy regulation, and what do we do about it, you know, there's actually a requirement for the parliament to take that seriously. Uh, and so the sorts of issues that have been brought forth since this was established have been things like how do we improve the working conditions of healthcare workers, which was actually brought up before COVID, so I think very prescient. Um, uh, how do we improve our system for lifelong learning in the region, given all the changes we have with technology and so on having an impact on labor markets? Um, how do we, uh, or what do we do about our affordable housing crisis, which I think is an issue that's facing many communities all around the world as well? Um, how do we better integrate people of a migration background into our community? Um, so they've brought forth actually quite a wide set of ranging issues and now there's different bits of legislation that have been developed as a result of the fact that everyday people from this community have brought them to the fore in the first place and other everyday people, because it's not the same groups that are working on them, there's now been lots of different sortition processes that have brought in more people into these policy making processes overall um, that have had a real legit, like genuine say in shaping those things. And so us Belgian might be fairly small and, and perhaps it's, it's less on the world map in some ways, but it's been a really interesting source of, of inspiration for many other places. So it inspired the, um, the city of Paris to set up the permanent citizens assembly there uh, in 2021, so a bit more recently, and that's now into its second cycle of functioning. It, it kind of works slightly differently to the Ausbelgian model, but but it was inspired by that initial thing. Um, as, as well as now, there's a permanent citizens assembly for climate in Brussels, um, and other places have been have been using this as a source of of, of inspiration too. So I, I think that for me, these are considered sort of successful initiatives initiatives because they're really changing things in a systemic way um, and I think that's the kind of change that we really need if we're wanting to get to the deeper roots of, of the problems that we're facing in democracy today. And could you tell us just a little bit more about how the members of those citizens' assemblies are, are selected? You mentioned a sortition process for Ost Belgium, um, but how many citizens are on each assembly and how long do they stay on for? Because clearly the system from the beginning has to be designed to prevent the nepotism that creeps into other models. 
Yeah, this is a very good question. And actually, the sortition aspect is not just a technical detail, but is really fundamentally important to the, the legitimacy that these processes have and how it makes it so different to an elections-based way of functioning. So sortition, the principle of it is random selection. And how that happens in practice is usually with two stages. So in a first stage, um, there's a very large number of invitations. So usually something in the realm of 30,000 invitations, but that varies depending on the size of a community, um, will go out completely at random um, to people living there. Um, so not necessarily passport holders or people on an electoral register, but in the, in the ideal sense, anybody living in a place is eligible to be receiving this invitation at random. And this tends to be in the form of a letter that is signed by the prime minister or the president or the minister or the mayor, um, inviting people to put themselves forth as a potential assembly member for this assembly that you know, for example, might address um, issues around like the affordable housing crisis that we're facing in, in the region. And so the, that invitation will explain how this process works, how much time is required. It answers the kind of commonly asked questions that help break down the barriers to participating. So it explains to people that like, no, you don't already need to be an expert on this because there's going to be a learning process and you're also bringing in your lived experience related to this issue. It explains that people will be paid, that things like childcare will be provided. Um, and it explains also importantly what's going to happen with these recommendations afterwards so you know people are being asked to give up quite a you know important part of time to be part of one of these assemblies so signaling the fact that this will lead to legislative change or policy changes or otherwise um, is part of a big motivating factor for for a lot of people that like oh wow this is actually like a serious and important process and it's quite a privilege to be part of this so so anyway so that, that first stage goes out to a large number of people and then everybody who says yes to that initial invitation there's then a second stage where there's a second lottery process but this time controlling for, um, the technical word for it is, is stratifying, um, for that final group to be broadly representative of the wider population when it comes to things like um, gender, age, geography, um, something that captures socioeconomic differences, so that might be education levels or income levels or, or something similar. Um, it depends again on the context of what data is available and, and what's the best variable to capture that. So, um, so the idea is at the end of this process to get to a group of people who broadly represents the kind of microcosm of the diversity of a of society of people living in a, in a community together. And so the, the principle to me that really matters is the fact that everybody has an equal chance of being selected in the first place. So it really recognizes that everybody has agency and dignity to be involved in shaping these decisions. Um, and there's an element of political equality that gets captured in, and embodied in, in that as well. So clearly, these are progressive and productive steps forward. I mean, most people wouldn't consider that design would be a relevant or useful tool to apply to this process. Based on your experience, what contribution can it make? Well, I think that design is actually such a critical tool when we're thinking about this, because actually, like every aspect of democracy 
is designed. So our processes and our, our rituals, the physical manifestation that they take, so elections with election ballots, um, sortition, how do you design actually such a process to be fair and legitimate? Um, how do you have sortition announcements that also create a ritual around this in the same way that you know every few years we go and we, we tick a box um, on a ballot paper? Um, the, the institutions and how they work, whether there are committees or working groups or how do you go from a, a small group to a large group dynamic which is quite common in any deliberative assembly actually these are all and actually and then how do you extend that back out to a wider population that's affected by an issue these are actually all design considerations um, and like beyond those sort of let's say process aspects there's also the physical spaces that are designed. Um, so if you look at the Houses of Parliament in UK, for, for in the UK, for instance, it's um, it's a physical space that's actually designed for, um, well, kind of combat in a way, with rows facing each other. Uh, other parliaments are, are semicircles, which have their own implications for behaviour within them. But actually, what's been interesting looking at this from a perspective of someone working on citizens' assemblies is that these spaces of government today are not designed for deliberation, uh, which actually requires a completely different kind of physical space uh, where you have more like circles, um, of small circles for conversation with more flexibility needed actually to move things around in a room where, you know, in a lot of these parliaments that like things are so physically anchored to the floor. <laughs> you can't move around the tables or the chairs sometimes as well. And things related to the acoustics and the lighting and you know, all of these design details have, have a big impact on how people behave together in a space. Um, so I think you know, the, the short answer to the question is I think design actually has a very important role to be playing when we think about democracy renewal. And what needs to happen to enable design to make a more meaningful contribution? Hmm. Well, you know, I, I think that's a really good question and I'm almost curious about what you think about this as well, because I think that, that there needs to be some more intentional bringing together of designers and democracy practitioners and reformers in some ways, because from my experience these past years, like I have been working a bit with both fields um, and I personally find it's not all that common for them to intersect a lot. Like that one thing I noticed that we're, always not, we're not always using even the same language or the, con or the same concepts, but we are thinking about similar things actually. Um, and I think sometimes the designers are working on, on things that are that are related to democracy, but don't always see things framed in that way based on how they've been doing it, but they're making valuable contributions that aren't always being picked up by the field of democratic innovation. And um, I suppose my own like main reference points in, in, in this kind of intersecting space has been really shaped by the, the people that I've been working with these past years. So, I mean, besides yourself, uh, people like Vera Sacchetti and Amelie Klein, Jan Bullen, Marcus Meeson, I think these have been designers who've taken a serious intersection of um, like that intersection between design and democracy um, but I wonder if there's something about how do we actually make this m like more into a thing that people uh, on both sides like both from both fields um, can be brought together a bit more intentionally because I think there's actually a lot of mutual benefit to bringing together that interdisciplinary approach and thinking that's really needed I think to be I don't know, be evolving the design of our current democratic institutions, processes, rituals, spaces, etc. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is already happening on a practical basis in terms of humanitarian and social design. So specific projects, issues and challenges in those spheres that need addressing. And increasingly, people in different sectors and other disciplines are using the design process as a useful tool for deliberation and communication. So uh, an increasingly popular recent example would be the phenomenon of legal design, where a lot of young lawyers are using design methodologies in order to try and change the approach to legislation, precedent, the way the law is interpreted and and implemented. So these changes are underway, but like the democratic reforms, they will take a long time, but things are broadly going in the right direction. So if we return to Democracy Next, it's made a huge impact um, since you launched it. What for you have been the key milestones in its development and also the principal frustrations, which for anyone launching anything new are bound to crop up? Uh, well, thank you, first of all, Alice. That's really kind and, and nice of you to, to say that. Um, I mean, it's certainly been a kind of whirlwind <laughs> of a year. So there have been milestones and there have also of infrustrations. I guess maybe starting with some of the the milestones. Um, I mean, I think for me, like they relate to a few different things. One one thing I see as a milestone is actually the fact that there's just more and more people who are contacting us wanting to be involved or inspired by the ideas and wanting to see what they can do to help bring them to life who are not just policymakers or people in government, but actually just everyday people like working in all sorts of fields, getting in touch as citizens, because that's actually one of the things that gives me some of the biggest motivation to really continue the work that we're doing, um, to feel like this has a resonance beyond just like the bubble of people in, in government as well. I think like a, maybe a personal m- milestone in some ways was that um, this past year I was also selected as one of the um, Obama leaders Europe. Uh, so I had an occasion to exchange with former President Obama about citizens assemblies. We were actually in Athens of all places too. Um, and so, you know, I know that he's a hugely influential figure for many people. So it's quite an important signal that there is some interest um, from his end as well and a belief uh, in the need for more of them and more experimentation with democracy beyond elections. Though, you know, I do want to stress actually that the work we're doing is non-partisan and cross-partisan in nature. So I bring up the example of, of former President Obama, but we're actually working with people across across that spectrum too. Um, and then, you know, maybe to share a couple of the milestones that relate more concretely to some of like what's the actual work we're, we're doing too. So one of them has been actually at this intersection in with design and democracy in, in some ways, because we've been working on this really great project around democratizing museums uh, with uh, Vera Sacchetti and Amelie Klein, working with the Bundeskunsthalle and the SKD, so two museums in Germany, in Bonn and in Dresden. Um, and, you know, this month, November 2023, both museums are having citizens assemblies that are taking place every weekend around how can we democratize this museum um, this physical space this programming space um, and the museums have committed to really taking those recommendations seriously and wanting to to make changes and implementations um, over the coming months Uh, and in both museums there's going to be exhibitions that open in the spring of 2024 and then 2025 um, around 
redesigning democracy. Uh, and so these assemblies will be featured in them as well as other kind of wider things that are that are, are, are happening in historical lenses, looking at these questions and so on. So, so to me, this is like quite an exciting development and one of those things that's, you know, quite been quite important for me to be thinking about how do we make democratic renewal happen, not just within, you know, what we traditionally think of as like the spaces of democracy, like our parliaments, but other um, organizations and institutions in, in public life. And, you know, we've also, one of the other kind of big projects we've been working on has been We've been collaborating together with an international task force on democratizing city planning. Um, so it's been a, a group of 15 people coming from different countries around the world, and it's a mix of, of architects and urbanists and planners, uh, designers, developers, uh, governance experts, so people like from different perspectives and all involved in this wider ecosystem. Um, we've been working together to actually come up with propositions for how could we make systemic changes happen to how um, urban planning decisions are taken because they just have such an impact on people's everyday lives in the places that they live um, and we're going to be publishing those next month with a call for proposals to cities to work with us to actually bring these ideas to life uh, so again there's some imagination work but that's actually you know it's not for the purpose of writing a nice report but we actually want to use that as an impetus to bring these these ideas to, to life and I think just one final milestone I'll, I'll share just to kind of convey the wide range of stuff we're doing um, I think it has to do with some of the quite serious academic collaborations that we've set up as well because we are also a research institute research and action um, and for example we've just launched a new uh, joint pop-up lab with MIT, um, the MIT Center for Constructive Communication on tech-enhanced citizens' assemblies. So I'm quite excited about this work because I really think that the tech infrastructure for citizens' assemblies is missing. Uh, and we're now working with some of the brightest people in the world to figure out how could we build it and how could we be using tech to make citizens' assemblies more effective on the one hand by really improving the deliberation that happens within them. How do we make them more trustworthy um, by having a better public archive of what actually happens during this process. Um, but also, how do we make these spread more easily because the tech enables them to be easier to, to run. Um, so to me, this is another element of this vision for systemic change because we're really working in a way to enable more people in more places to be able to do citizens' assemblies themselves um, while we advocate for them to have real power too. Um, so, so yeah, so I think the milestones kind of convey that. Like, I, I don't know, I'm just quite excited that it feels like we're having some impact, um, that these ideas are resonating and spreading to new realms, uh, we're getting more traction and that actually some of this change is really starting to, to happen. Um, but um, I haven't forgotten the second part of your question about some of the, the challenges and frustrations too, because, you know, th those are all of the very outward facing things we're doing, but behind the scenes it has been quite a lot of work to set up an international foundation with uh, the, the, all the legal stuff required to actually make that happen. The, the fundraising isn't always easy either. Like I, you know, I was saying this is really a long-term game for this change, but the funding often comes in one or two year cycles when you're working with foundations. Sometimes it's very project-based. So making all those things come together isn't, isn't always easy. Um, so I, I would say that all those kind of aspects of actually making this into a solid basis of a foundation that can also run and last and, and, and be impactful and, and work well um, has also been you know part of the considerations of, of how we've been doing this and I think maybe 
the one thing I would just say in case like anyone listening to this is maybe also in a place of thinking about like oh maybe I should leave my institutional job and set up a new thing like that like to bring to life ideas I'm super passionate about I think that you know for me that the one of the main things that has enabled this being possible though is not trying to do it alone um, so you know I think I get a lot of credit as like a founder of this organization um, and you know this was my initial idea but actually it only came to life because of a, a large group of people who've been involved in helping as well so my colleague Yeva Chesnoitite who I mentioned earlier who worked with me at OECD has been involved in helping found Democracy Next from the from the beginning we've worked with a, a group of strategic advisors and an advisory board which you are part of as well Alice um, who you know have been giving us valuable guidance and help and support along the way um, some people giving guidance around the substance of the work other people helping with the organizational stuff that I was mentioning and I think I think I would give that as a tiny bit of advice for anyone thinking about this that actually um, this is something that I think to be successful has to has to actually be done in a quite collaborative way working with lots of, of people as well. <laughs> Well, it has obviously paid off for, for democracy next, and, and thank goodness. So finally, Claudia, what do you believe are the biggest challenges and opportunities for democracy and our hopes of really fixing and revitalising democracy over the next decade? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question to, to end on, I guess. I, I think making this change happen is not always easy. Um, like, there are there are quite a large number of people who want to preserve the, the status quo. I'm also quite concerned about the trends we see about rising, uh, rising authoritarianism and, you know, governments actually taking away some of these hard-won rights and freedoms that people have been fighting for, for for a long time, restricting people's ability to go and protest or have freedom of speech or, um, I don't know, cracking down on journalists and so on. And this is not just happening in other parts of the world. Like some of these things are happening in the countries where you and I are living in today as well so like I, I think actually like my concern is the the spread of some of these these tendencies and I think if anything to me they reinforce the need to be actually doing the sorts of work that help address some of those really deep drivers of these problems and enablers as well and like one of the one of the big reasons why I've been advocating for citizens assemblies in particular so much is I think that they they really help address some of those deep drivers of some of those problems we have with democracy. So by having processes with sortition, which bring in people who today are not necessarily actively engaged in politics, who may not be voting, who are not necessarily members of political parties or are volunteering, um, actually by being part of a citizens assembly, we have a huge amount of evidence that it really awakens people's sense of agency and people become a lot more active in their communities. They go on to volunteer, they run for office, they, um, you know, they might start new organizations and new NGOs, uh, become uh, volunteers in, in, their, in their communities. And I think it's actually that awakening of civic agency in an individual and a collective sense, which is like one of the 
things we need for a resilient a society that's resilient to authoritarian trends um, because authoritarians feed on people feeling powerless um, and so how could we enable processes and, and, and things to spread in a way where more people have that opportunity to actually um, gain that sense of agency and there's the ripple effects of that that spread um, throughout society um, and I think we really also need more of these deliberative spaces that get opened up by assemblies as well um, because again we we just don't have so many places where there's a true diversity of people who are coming around a table together as equals um, and listening to one another and having an opportunity to feel heard but also actually to even be with the true complexity of the issues that we face. Um, so not simplifying the problems, but actually being with that complexity and, and you know, spending time with it and figuring out, okay, what are the different things we can be, do and, and be doing and finding common ground on moving forward on them? Because I don't think there's like some sort of easy shortcut to fixing these democratic problems. I think we need to be making the systemic change happen um, that opens up that privilege and responsibility of, of public decision-making to more people, enables more people to have a sense of agency, and we have the spaces that enable us to, to find the common ground around the complex issues that we're facing um, today. So it's not going to be easy to, to get there. And I guess what I want to say, though, is, um, you know, people listening here might not be like in government and able to initiate a citizens assembly and they're like, well, what could I do? I think there's a couple of things in, in the sense of like, you know, I mentioned the museums project earlier intentionally because I actually think we can be taking these principles of sortition and deliberation into other organizations and parts of our lives, um, into our workplaces and, uh, you know, local associations that we're part of in our schools. Um, how could we actually be changing things in these other institutions that actually like allow us to live these democratic principles and other aspects of our lives um, and then I think the other inspiring uh, little story to, to end on is that actually the very first citizens assemblies that I would say had the biggest ripple effects and have been the start of some of the systemic change we have today were actually bottom-up initiatives by motivated groups of citizens who came together and said we're going to organize a citizens assembly them up and we're going to put pressure on the government to actually take this seriously. Um, it was the starting point for the first assembly in Ireland, so I'm not going to get into the details now at the closing of, of the podcast, but um, you know, there was the first citizens assembly in Ireland um, that was completely driven bottom-up um, with some lobbying and advocacy to get um, government to take it seriously. And today, uh, around 10 years later, citizens' assemblies have become um, a kind of institution in Ireland taking place on all sorts of different issues. They've led to constitutional changes around abortion and same-sex marriage and other issues, lots of different legislative changes. And, um, and that started bottom-up by a group of citizens who said... We need a citizens' assembly. So uh, I, I think that there's actually lots of things that we could all be doing um, in smaller, big ways to try and make this, this change happen. And um, that's kind of the only way change has ever really happened by groups. Uh, I forget the exact quote. I think it's by Margaret Mead by, um, you know, groups of, 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 of motivated citizens coming together um, to, to change the world. 
Oh, well, thank you so much, Claudia. It's such important work and it's wonderful to hear you talking about it with such aplomb and vigour and, and commitment. So thank you for joining us on Design Emergency. And thank you to everyone for listening. You can find images of the projects that Claudia's described on our Instagram feed at design.emergency. And we look forward to welcoming you back to Design Emergency soon, when we'll be talking to another global design leader who, like Claudia and her colleagues at Democracy Next, is forging positive change. Goodbye.